The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am honored today to welcome my guest, Dr. Dorothy Sears. She is an associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health and associate director of the Center for Circadian Biology at the University of California in San Diego. Her research focuses on obesity and the risk for obesity-related diseases, including insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and breast cancer. I had the pleasure of hearing her speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting in Chicago in October of 2017, and her presentation was among the best. It focused on intermittent fasting. And I felt immediately like I needed to bring her voice to our listeners on Food Sleuth Radio. So welcome, Dr. Sears. Thank you, Melinda. It's great to be on the show. Well, my first question has to be, how did you become interested in this field of circadian rhythms and obesity and intermittent fasting? What led you down this path? Well, I'm classically trained as a molecular biologist, so I come from this very world of tiny molecules and I've always been interested in human disease. And when I had completed my PhD training and was wanting to get into studying human disease, I started my work in learning about type 2 diabetes. I was working alongside clinicians and learning about the challenges of taking care of people who have type 2 diabetes and people who are at risk for that and learning a lot about medications and that. And I really was intrigued by really a lack of interest in non-medication approaches to disease prevention and therapies. And I'm very interested in the role of just how can we change behaviors and the role of diet improvements in disease prevention. So I gradually evolved in my way of conducting my research and my readings and putting together my research teams to studying therapeutic behavior changes to prevent disease. And that led me into looking at diet composition and to meeting people that were studying circadian rhythms and learning about the relationship between food intake overlaid onto this circadian clock, which I hadn't known nothing about, and how this influences our health. Mm-hmm. Would you explain to our listeners what are circadian rhythms? So circadian, the word circadian, circa, means like circle. So it's around, and dia means day. So circadian means around the day. So circadian is for us, and almost every living thing on the planet, is a 24-hour cycle around the day, which includes roughly a 12-hour dark period of time and a 12-hour light period of time, which of course these periods of time change by season and also where we live on the planet. But all living creatures are responsive to these light and dark periods of time. And we have different parts of our biology which are optimized to these periods of time. 
So, for example, we have a hormone called melatonin, which is secreted during the nighttime. And the secretion of melatonin is helping us to have better quality sleep. It is responsible for a lot of growth and activities in our bodies that are happening during the nighttime. But melatonin secretion is actually inhibited by the light. So it's a hormone that if you're up at night and watching TV at 2 o'clock in the morning, you're actually inhibiting your secretion of melatonin. Mm. And so we are evolved to be responsive to light and dark. And when we start changing our exposure to the environment or input from the environment, we can start uh, interfering with our body's natural processes. And food intake can make changes in our body's responses to this circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I remember from your talk in Chicago, you had mentioned how we're constantly around food in our society. So one of my favorite billboards, well, it's not my favorite. I, I actually have a photograph of it, and I use it in presentations, is the Taco Bell fourth meal oh, gosh. Right? So your yes. presentation focused on, you know, we really should be eating during that first 12 hours of the day from the time we wake up until about 5 or 6 o'clock at night if we're going to eat according to when our enzyme and hormone systems are most ready to handle the calories. And yet we are surrounded by the sight and smell of food constantly, it seems. And then for those of us who work at night, we know, for example, that night shift workers have higher rates of different metabolic disorders, diabetes, obesity, for example. We really, as a society, are facing many challenges, aren't we? It is a challenge. It is definitely a challenge. And then when I saw that billboard or commercial, well, first I had to chuckle about it, and then I, it kind of made me a little bit nervous for us because we have this marketing for a consumption of food across the 24-hour clock. And it's definitely, the research is showing that consuming foods in the dark part of the cycle is has negative effects for us, not only just acutely in the moment at that day or in our sleep quality later that night, but also long-term for our risk for chronic diseases, yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting during your presentation, you mentioned how melatonin will actually inhibit insulin secretion. So when that happens, if we're eating that bowl of ice cream at night while we're watching television, we won't have the same output of insulin to cover the sugar in the ice cream. So this is fascinating. Let's talk about how these different hormones set us up to the best time for eating. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the hormone insulin is a hormone that is secreted in response to sugar. So when you consume a meal that contains carbohydrate or sugars, the sugar that gets into the bloodstream after that meal then is signaling to the cells that have the insulin. And the insulin then is getting into the blood, and that tells the organs in the body that store the carbohydrate to remove the carbohydrate or remove the sugar from the blood because sugar in the blood is toxic in the long term. So we need to get it out of the blood pretty quickly. And so insulin works very well in the morning and the responsiveness of the cells that store that insulin is very good in the morning. 
And the responsiveness of those two pathways is decreasing throughout the day. So as it gets into the afternoon, the early evening, and later into the night, those insulin signaling pathways are less responsive to that sugar signal, and then your body is less efficient at storing the sugar. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that the sugar in the blood stays in the blood for a longer period of time, and our bodies then are exposed to that sugar for longer, and then this can lead to damage to the blood vessels and other tissues that are exposed to it. And over a long period of time throughout our lifetimes, if this is a pattern, then this is definitely not a good thing for people that have diabetes or prediabetes. This is particularly bad because it makes the cells that are producing insulin have to work a little bit harder. They are already challenged by having high glucose levels. So this is particularly dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, so glucose control is very important. And melatonin is also, as I had mentioned before, secreted in the evening time, that's blocking insulin. There's another hormone also that's more uh, secreted to a higher concentration in the evening, and that's growth hormone. Mm -hmm. That's another hormone. And these two hormones, they're supposed to be working in the nighttime, and we're not uh, really designed to be eating in the night. That's so interesting. So for people who are facing prediabetes or even who have type 2 diabetes, do you think simply shifting when we consume our meals can have an impact in correcting or reversing that disease? I do. I think that this is a very interesting area of research and a very exciting area of research, and I think we need to do these types of studies. But certainly if a person has diabetes, eliminating or dramatically reducing the caloric intake in the nighttime let's say after 6 p.m., I believe would significantly lower their glucose exposure across the 24-hour cycle. And if that pattern is practiced daily, just as a, a matter of change, a behavior change, a very, it would be a, a modest behavior. I think this would lead to a reduction in hemoglobin A1c. The beta cells, which are the cells in the pancreas that are secreting the insulin hormone, would not have to work as hard. They would likely last longer in that person, so they would have a slower progression of their disease over their lifetime, likely a lower degree of complications throughout their lifetime from their diabetes. I think it's a very promising complications prevention modality that could be practiced in this disease population. Yeah, this is so hopeful. I want to ask you, too, about obesity and insulin resistance. What comes first? I think in Western populations, obesity comes first. Mm -hmm. I think primarily you have overnutrition, weight gain at the cellular level, at the tissue level. The adipose tissue is becoming filled with excess fat, and this isn't necessarily from excess fat consumption. I think there was a period of time that you're probably well aware of the snack well type diet that had right. no fat, the fat-free snack. Yeah. And people thought, oh, I can eat as much of the fat-free snacks 
as I want to and I'll never get fat. But the fact is that your body is very good at converting carbohydrate into fat because you have unlimited capacity to store fat. So the fat cells become larger. And as these kind of balls of fat get larger, they are less able to oxygen, for example, is less able to get into the cell. The cells are less able to kind of manage themselves and they have what's called hypoxic stress and other stress signals are happening within those cells. Hypoxia is a lack of oxygen. They become so large that they don't have enough little micro vessels, blood vessels that get to them. So nutrients aren't getting to them oxygen. So they have stress signals there and inflammation. So when the inflammation starts in the adipose tissue, that inflammation, those signals can spread to other tissues, muscle and liver. The inflammation signals can counteract the insulin action. So that is what's leading to insulin resistance. Mm. So there's some disagreement in the literature which comes first, but I'm in the uh, on the side of inflammation comes first and then that leads to insulin resistance. Very interesting. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Dorothy Sears. She's an associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health. She's also the associate director of the Center for Circadian Biology at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Sears received her PhD at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I wanted to reflect on that for a moment, Dr. Sears, and say that I don't believe I've ever gone to a doctor for a checkup. I've never had a question posed to me about what time do I eat, right? Like I've never been told that I could reduce my risk for type 2 diabetes, obesity, as well as cancer and heart disease simply by shifting how and when I eat. And I should alter that by saying not how as much as when, because you presented data showing that it really didn't matter what the fat and carbohydrate mix was at all. It was the timing of consumption that made the most difference. That's correct. It's a very new area of research. And as you know, diet research is complicated, but more and more evidence is showing that when you eat is extremely important. And even if a person or an animal model is eating a bad macronutrient content diet, really matters what time of day and eating more of the caloric content in the earlier part of the day is beneficial compared to eating that caloric content in the evening time. Hmm. People are interested in weight loss. There are now multiple studies showing that if the participants in a weight loss study are eating their main meal earlier in the day, they lose more weight than people who are eating their larger meal in the evening time or later after lunch. This is so important for people, especially, you know, as we start the new year, people mm -hmm. are gravitating towards quitting smoking and losing weight. <laughs> this just seems like such a great way to start a fresh year with a little tweaking of our habits. Now, your presentation in Chicago for the Dietetic Association was really focused on intermittent fasting, and you showed us a variety of ways to practice fasting, as well as some of the challenges that we experience when we try to do this. So let's first talk about what intermittent fasting is and the best way you think we might employ this to be healthier. Sure. So... Intermittent fasting 
is, well, fasting is just the voluntary abstention of eating foods. And so intermittent fasting is a term that could be defined in a variety of ways. So during my presentation, I explained kind of in our recent review the way we kind of narrowed them down into three categories. So one category that we classified as just a complete alternate day fasting. So this is where you actually, on alternate days, consume no energy-containing foods or beverages with days where you eat whatever you eat or drink, whatever you want. So there are studies showing some benefits of doing that. But you can imagine on those days where you're eating or drinking nothing with calories, that those days that you're eating nothing are quite challenging, (laughs) especially as you mentioned before, when we have big billboards and television commercials and radio commercials and people around us talking about food, it's it's challenging to stick to that. So another regimen is called the modified fasting regimen. We call it that. This regimen is similar to a complete alternate day fasting in that it but it allows consumption of about 20 to 25% of your energy needs on a scheduled fasting day. For example, there's a popular diet out there called 5-2 diet, which allows you have two days of this severe caloric restriction on any two non-consecutive days of the week, and then five days of the week you eat whatever you want. So on these two days, I have some friends that do this, um, again, you can only eat 20 to 25% of your caloric needs. And again, this can be kind of a challenge. And even if you can consume, let's say, 500 calories on those days, if you are walking by the lunchroom in the office and you smell somebody's tasty leftover lasagna that they're warming <laughs> up or what have you, that you know, the stomach starts to growl, your glucose maybe starts to drop uh, because your brain will actually, when you smell food, will secrete a little bit of insulin that might cause a glucose drop, a little hypoglycemia. So those can be challenging regimens to follow. Time-restricted feeding is another type of intermittent fasting regimen, and that allows unrestricted eating but within a specific time frame. This is the type of regimen that we think is a very viable regimen if the time-restricted, the period which the feeding is allowed, falls in the circadian phase of the day, which is the active phase, in alignment with when the sun is up, mostly, mm-hmm. <laughs> but during our active phase of the day. We, we believe that, and what our evidence is showing us, is that a prolonged period of time during the night of fasting, so this is the period from your last calorie eaten at dinner time to the next calorie that you eat in the morning, is an important period of time to abstain from calorie intake, to give your gut a break, to allow those other hormones to do their job, and so we call it prolonged nightly fasting. Mm -hmm. And in our population studies, we've shown that this period of time, which what we're finding is at about 12 to 13 hours, This prolonged nightly fasting, 12 to 13 hours, is associated with lower biological indicators of risk for type 2 diabetes and for obesity-related cancers. 
And in a particular population of breast cancer survivors, we showed it was related to a decreased risk of breast cancer recurrence. You know, I saw the breast cancer research, and I was extremely fascinated by this simply by having, I believe it was a 13-hour fast from your last meal at night to your first meal in the morning, reduced breast cancer recurrence by 30%. Did I hear that correctly? 30, 36%. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Now, is this for hormone positive or negative cancers? Help me refresh my memory on this subgroup of women with breast cancer. I don't remember the distribution off the top of my head, but just most of them were hormone positive. Mm, interesting. Um, but there were 2,300, over 2,300 breast cancer survivors. And the name of the study was the Women's Healthy Eating and Living Study, which was a seven-year prospective study. It was based here at UCSD, but it was a multi-center trial. The trial, actually, interestingly, was to randomize uh, the breast cancer survivors into uh, two different groups of they would eat lots of fruits and vegetables or not, and uh, that's, that was the main purpose of the study. Mm. It turned out that eating lots of fruits and vegetables, which they did prove that they did do that, didn't seem to make a difference on the breast cancer recurrence. Mm. But we have lots of data from the participants, and what we have from them is this daily food records. So over seven years' time, we had over 30,000 food records, and these are time-stamped. So, and we also have health records of what happened to them over seven years. So we were able to go back to those food records at the and the time-stamps and to look at the fasting, the nightly fasting behaviors of these individuals and study the associations of their food-eating patterns, their nightly fasting patterns, and their breast cancer recurrence. Now, and that's how we got our data. This is really important for our listeners. Now, with regard to the nightly fasting then, we live in the society that goes out to eat with friends, goes to parties, you go out in the evening, you want to have a drink. Is there a minimum number of days per week that we need to practice this 13-hour fast in order to see the benefits, or does it have to be seven days a week? (laughs) Well, again, there aren't a lot of studies done in human, especially intervention controlled studies. So these are large population studies. So we need to do more work on this. And we're certainly campaigning in IH to get the money to do these work. But mice are small and we can control their conditions very well. So we do have some more data accumulated in the mice. And my colleague, Dr. Sachin Panda over at the Salk Institute across the street from me here, has done such a study in the mice where he said, okay, and honestly, I think maybe the graduate students suggested it. (laughs) They said, okay, what if we just fasted the mice or had them do this uh, time-restricted feeding regimen Monday through Friday, and then on the weekend, they can eat whenever they want. And I think maybe the students just didn't want to come in and fast the mice on the weekend. Right. (laughs) Let's just let them eat whatever they want on the weekend. Right. And the mice had just the same benefit when they were just doing the fasting regimen Monday through Friday and eating whatever they wanted on the weekend. So this was really exciting because, as you know, humans, well, we fall off the wagon sometimes when we're trying to make beneficial dietary changes in our behaviors. So we're very excited as, as people that do the clinical work. We're very excited to see that result in the mouse studies 
because that means that, yes, our participants, when we do our research, and then out in the real world as a public health message, we can say, yeah, on the weekend, go to a party, have hors d'oeuvres till 10 o'clock, have a glass of wine at 10 o'clock, and it's okay. And then just try most of the time to curtail your eating after 6. Yeah. And I just... As an example, and we don't know what the magic number is. It, you know, is it six o'clock? Is it eight o'clock? We think it's probably somewhere between six and eight, based on our population studies. But there was another study that was interesting too. I found that was done in women in Hong Kong. It was another population study, but they looked at the eating times of the women and the incidence of breast cancer. And again, the women that were they looked. Their magic number was 10 o'clock, so the women eating after 10 o'clock at night had increase in breast cancer. However, the women who were eating mostly fruits and vegetables after 10 o'clock did not have this increased risk. Hmm. So there may also be a macronutrient component of what you're eating. So again, there are many, many aspects of diet. So it's not just the time of day, but it may also be what are you eating and at what time. So if you get home late from work, perhaps if you try to stick to a low-calorie amount and mostly vegetables, low-carbohydrate-containing vegetables, for example, that might be a better food option for those folks eating later at night. Night shift workers maybe try to keep it to a salad lighter on the dressing, you know, right. lower calorie content. What about trying to... things like diet soda, sugar-free gum, herbal tea? Can a person have those non-caloric kinds of foods and beverages without disrupting the body's perception of fasting? That's a really good question, and we don't know the answer to that. And so, again... We, my fasting, my colleagues and I who are interested in fasting and designing these regimens, you know, the the mouse people want to be absolute. Right, <laughs> of course. Nothing. And you can but be with mice. Us, <laughs> right. But those of us that are clinical researchers, we say, well, look, you have to have something that's practical. And the fact is that, you know, I have to have my coffee in the morning. And so, you know, I don't put anything in my coffee. So I, I can drink my coffee black. If you like to have half and half in your coffee, there's not a lot of carbs in that. It's probably fine, and that wouldn't necessarily break your fasting. When we did our population analyses, we had to think about, okay, the last meal or the first meal because we're looking at this time span. So how do you classify meal? So first we were going to say, well, anything that was 50 calories or more. Mm-hmm. And then I started looking up, well, what – you know, what could be 50 calories. And then that, I was thinking, well, you could actually eat a lot for 50 calories. Right. So then we cut it down to 25. So if the splash of half and half that you put in your coffee is less than 25 calories, I don't know, that wouldn't have even spiked our radar in our studies. Hmm. So I'm thinking modest content of calories is probably fine. We don't know the answer. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I will, artificial sweeteners, we don't know about that either, but it's certainly something that's of interest. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, we will have to have you come back because unfortunately <laughs> our time is up, but your research is important and it's fascinating. And I want to thank you so much for being my guest. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. We have been speaking with Dr. Dorothy Sears, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health and Associate Director of the Center for Circadian Biology at the University of California in San Diego. Thank you again, Dr. Sears, for your important work. Thank you.